It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I'm really glad you guys decided to join us here at Church in the Valley. And uh, we, we're right now, my, uh, we're in the middle of a message series on the family and living life together. And uh, my name is Jeep Underwood, and I'm going to be speaking on today on facing trouble together. Uh, we, we've been looking at like how to face conflict. We've been looking at uh, expectations and how to, how to really deal with those over the last few weeks. But today I want to look at like facing trouble together. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like trouble. <laughs> trouble is very troubling to me. Um, <clears throat> you know, I uh, a few years ago, about two, three years ago, I was getting ready for work and uh, getting ready to head out the door. And the phone rang. And a lot of times you're like, well, I'm too busy. I, I, I'm, I'm gone. You know, the, unfortunately, that person just missed me because I, I have to go. I'm late for work. So I go over, but I went over and I checked it and I pulled it up and it had an area code 202, which I work for the federal government, so I recognize that as Washington, D.C. I thought, well, I don't often have Washington, D.C. call me. And then I looked above it and it said IRS. I don't know about you, but you know, when the IRS calls, <laughs> you do have a conflicting moment for a moment or two. And, uh, I thought, you know, I, I better answer the phone if the IRS is calling. So, I called up, you know, I, pick, I take the call and there's a guy on the other line and he, uh, he's, he's like kind of really, uh, I don't know, he has a kind of a commanding presence in his tone and like he says, you know, my, I'm a police officer and this and this and he says, I, I work for the IRS and, uh, we've done an audit of your taxes from 2008 to 2014 and, uh, there's a miscalculation in the amount of $1,200 a UO. And I'm like, Whoa, really? And he says, we've sent you two certified letters and you've ignored them. And so you're now into a new phase. I'm like, I didn't ignore anything. I'm, I'm taking this in. And he says, uh, in fact, he said, there's a lawsuit that's been filed against you. <laughs> I should have just gone to work. But uh, uh, there's a lawsuit that's been filed against you and uh, an arrest warrant has been issued because you've let this go too long. So I'm on the phone, and I'm really trying to deal with this. I'm trying to take it in like, what in the world? And, you know, I, I had had a few dealings with the IRS about a year earlier, and so there were some things they'd mailed to me back and forth, and we settled up. And so I just had to kind of this ring of, man, the IRS is uh, kind of upset with me. And they said, you know, if you settle the debt immediately, though, this would go all the way. And uh, and so I'm I'm still kind of reeling, and so I'm not thinking real clearly at this moment. And, uh, he talked about how you, 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 uh, if you hang up, if you do hang up, then a police officer will be at your door and within two hours to arrest you. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm on my way out anyway. No, no, <laughs> I guess I'm just going to be gone longer than I thought. No. And so I'm taking, I'm taking this in and I'm, uh, <laughs> and, uh, honestly, I was reeling. It just, it was, I was shaken and I'm, and, for, and then, I, then I started asking some questions. And as I asked questions, things began to kind of unravel a little bit on the other line, into the line. Because I, he, I said, well, what do I, do I just go to the IRS website and make a payment? Because I'd been, I'd done that in the past. He goes, no, uh, this is a different, uh, different, uh, different thing. You're in a, because you've let it go so long, you need to pay, uh, in a more direct manner. Okay. And he said, if you were to go down to Walmart, and, and get a, uh, and get a money gram and wire it directly to us. And I, I started Walmart? And I said, 
And then, but for just a second, he says, and leave me on the line as we go. You know, I was like, and so I'm just, I'm just thinking, and I was just asking questions. I'm still reeling, but I'm starting to come back to like what's going on in my living room. And then I, I asked questions like, well, if there were two notices that were mailed, I said, I, I didn't, I would, I definitely pay attention to anything that says IRS. I said, I don't think I ever saw those. He says, well, they required a signature, and if you weren't there to pick them up, that's really not our responsibility. I went, well, you know, IRS, usually they, they, they pummel you with information. They don't keep you from information. And, and then I thought, I said, well, I asked him, well, if, if my attorney, if I wanted to have my attorney contact uh, the court, what court is it that this would be in? And then that's where he goes, uh, in California. I went, oh, okay, in California. That, that narrows it down. Um, but still, you, you're on the line. You're like, how? I said, and so I just, I was still, I was rattled, and I said, I'll tell you what. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hang up, and then I'm going to get a hold of the IRS. And if I got any issue with them, I'm going to them to settle up. And uh, he goes, "Well, I'll tell you what." And I just I hung up, and then I went over to the computer and I pulled up online. And sure enough, I found that this was like a typical this is a uh, typical scam. Some of the key phrases he was using were there, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, okay, okay." And I still, you know, I, I went to work going, "Hey, Kate, hey, in case I'm not home, I'm going to get home." <laughs> Someone may have arrested me. But, you know, the more I talked to that guy, the more it unraveled. But, you know, for about 20 minutes, I was just really, really rattled. And, you know, things that happen to us, that's, that's you know, when trouble comes, it just, it just rattles us. It can, it can really rattle us. And that happens very often in our lives. It could be like a short-term thing. It could be a long-term thing. But things can really rattle you. And, and there's some different perspectives. Like people tend to have on trouble. Um, they just try to one one perspective that people have on trouble is that they just try to prevent it from happening at all, and so this is kind of this is kind of what's behind maybe like helicopter parenting, you know, like your kid has headed off to college or into their life, and you're just trying to make sure they don't ever have any experiences of any trouble. So you you just try to control things so that they don't have any problems, or uh, something you could call lawnmower parenting, <laughs> which is like you try to mow all the trouble down before they get there. As, as kids are growing up, as your kids are growing up, uh, you just, there's a real tendency, uh, in, with parents, and cause I can really relate to this, is, is just to really try to make sure that your kids don't have any trouble. And so you can really, you can really fall into that, that perspective. Then there's, a, there's another perspective that people have on trouble, and that is, you know, it's, uh, there's a famous line from a philosopher in the 1800s, uh, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And, uh, you know, you could, that's a perspective a person could have on, uh, on trouble. Or you could have heard that from a Kelly Clarkson song, uh, a few years ago. But, uh, you know, pop music or, uh, or philosophers, your choice. But the, the issue is, the problem is, is that's really not, that's really not true. You know, when, when trouble comes, uh, things that, uh, that don't kill you, you don't automatically grow. You don't automatically just, Improve. You don't automatically just uh, improve with that. But often, you know, it's really easy to get into actually kind of a spiral. You can get have trouble and then have wrong, real wrong responses to it, which causes more trouble. And you can actually get into some real issues with, with trouble. It doesn't just automatically help you grow because of the way we respond to it. And it turns out that everything that doesn't kill you doesn't make you stronger. So, you know, understanding and responding to trouble in life is really a critical issue. It's understanding and really responding to trouble in the right way. And family life is really a place where God really wants that to, for kids, our kids to be really learning that. 
And, you know, our family should really prepare people for, or our kids for trouble and the failures and the things that they're going to face in their life. And a big part of our job as parents is just to, uh, is to really prepare them for that. And also just, we have a responsibility to teach them to have the right perspective on trouble and how to really deal with it when it comes. And to be able to do that, to be able to pass that on, we really need to be gaining a better perspective and the right perspective ourselves on that. So I'd like to talk just a little bit about just the perspective on trouble, the, a right perspective on trouble as it comes. The first, the first uh, element is just that trouble's just a normal part of life. If take a look at Job, uh, chapter five, verse seven. Job says, um, "Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward." But just it, trouble's just a real normal part of life. It's it's not what God really intended when He created when He did creation, but but really the rebellion of the first family and then our sins afterward have really created an environment where trouble really is just a normal part of life. And that when you know when Jesus came, He became very familiar with an experiential level with our world of suffering and trouble, and He went to the cross so that we could really have peace and joy and hope uh, in the midst of our real lives. That's that's what He that's what He was doing when He went to the cross and. For those of us who've really accepted God's offer of forgiveness and really stepped into his kingdom and really made Jesus the boss of our lives, that there's really another major perspective on trouble, and that is that God really uses trouble to train his kids. When, we, when, you, when you become a believer, you really become adopted into his family, and you become his son or his daughter, and God really uses trouble to really train you. So let's take a look at uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in uh, twelve seven, and also verses 10 and 11. It says, he says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And then our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So God really, he really wants to use trouble for our good so that we grow to be more and more like him over time. And he uses, he uses trouble in our life really to get our attention so that we really will pay attention to what it is he's trying to teach us so that we can really learn it and really act on it and be trained by it. And he, he uses, he uses the hard, he uses hard things in our lives to put his finger on something in our life that he really wants us to learn, something he really wants us to, he wants to teach us and, uh, an issue that he really wants to deal with us. Now, it might be that, you know, for you, or uh, you might, maybe maybe you're having an issue with uh, with your boss. And in fact, it seems like with all the jobs you've had, you always kind of have an issue with the, with the guy in charge. Well, it could be that one thing that God is really trying to do in you is just to learn how to really follow imperfect leadership and really trust him. And that could, that could be something that's really, that's really going on there. And when we choose to be trained by it, when we respond to what God is really trying to help us learn, then we really do make progress, and he really does help us over time. And, and as we do that over time, we become more and more convinced of a few things, and that is that God really is our Father, and that he's really active in our lives, and that he really cares about us. So we become much more convinced as we go through that process of being trained that God really is our Father, he really does care about us, and that he really is active in our lives. And God really wants our homes and our families to be places where our, our kids can become more and more convinced of these things as well. 
So as we go for, as you go into the future, another perspective on trouble is just not to short circuit the process for yourself or for your kids. Don't, don't short circuit that process. Uh, Romans 5, Paul says, <coughs> excuse me. He says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. He rejoices in his trouble, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. So, why why does that produce hope? If you look at the chain that he's putting together there, he says you have trouble, and then it, it builds in you a perseverance. It's and it, you be, you're able to you learn how to endure through hard things, and then as you do that, it leads to really a proven character. You begin to have a different character traits, and then that produces hope. I think it produces hope because you see yourself over time becoming more and more like Jesus. You become more and more like the person you always wanted to be as you really uh, participate with him and endure through the trouble that comes along. And the thing is, is that we really our knee-jerk reaction sometimes when our kids begin to develop some trouble in their lives is, like I said before, to come down and just remove it from them, just make sure they don't have any problems. But, you know, one thing about kids is as they, as they start, as they start uh, growing up and they go to school, they start going to school. They start having their own experiences and their own lives that they live outside of you. And they start running into some things that uh, they have to learn how to deal with, some trouble that they're dealing with on their level. And uh, really, as parents, we want to really help them guide them through that. Now, several several years ago, my, my, uh, my daughter Molly is uh, 18 years old now and in college. When she was in second grade, uh, I remember, you know, as you, as you go, you kind of think, oh, the kids are just always going to be great. And then she comes home one day and she was having a real problem with school. Now, what I found out when Molly was in second grade is that second grade boys don't have nearly as much drama as second grade girls. <laughs> you know, second grade girls have a lot of drama. Um, guys are like throwing the ball at each other, but that's about it. Um, but with Molly, she, she had a, she has, uh, some friends, you know, she's always been a, a very social gal. But she had some friends uh, that she was really enjoying. And then this one gal told her, said, you can't be my friend anymore unless you stop being friends with everybody else. You just need to be spending time with me. You know, just she just wanted just to monopolize Molly and just always be with Molly. And it, she just it was just just the way it's just something that uh, that she was uh, she was struggling with right there. So she told that to Molly and Molly. Molly just. Didn't know how to, didn't know how to handle that. So she comes home and she's telling us about it. And my first reaction, I don't know about you guys as parents, but I, I became a second grade boy for just a second. And, and my first reaction, and I, I didn't say this out loud, I'm grateful, but it was just kind of like, oh yeah, well, you know, <laughs> well then I don't want to be your friend. You know, it's, um, and I'm thinking, you know, that's not the advice that I should be giving. So. But then I was perplexed, and I just—I remember just praying, God, would you just help me to figure out how to help her in the world she's in? And so, as I did that, I be, it became clear. I began to just—we began to talk with her. Kate and I were both talking to her, and we helped her see a few things. We helped her see some things from God's angle on the situation. So we took—you know—it was a couple of scripture that we that we uh, that we threw out with her and talked about. And then we helped, we helped her see that it was actually a very sad thing that was happening from the little other little girl. It was very sad that she was trying to manipulate and pull people into only her world. And that if she never changed that, that she would wind up having no friends. 
in her life. She, that's actually a very lonely approach to life. And so we were talking with her about that. And then we also just t- talked to her about her need to forgive her friend for making such an unfair demand. And that that was just really wrong that she even asked you to do that. And then to really help her to see the, leave the door open, to leave the door open to relationship with her, with this little girl. Like, how do you do that? And, and as, as we're dealing with it, I felt like God was teaching me a lot as well. And as we're, as we're talking about that, uh, I said, you know, Molly, you could say something like this. And Molly went to school and she actually, what she did is she talked to that gal and she said, I really, I really like you. And I want to be your friend, but I want to be friends with the other people too. And I'm, I'm going to continue. I'm going to keep being friends with everybody else, but I really want you to be friends with me too. So if you ever want to be friends, I really want to be friends with you and just left that door open. Now her, her, uh, her friend didn't accept that real well at the beginning. Uh, that, you know, she didn't respond real great, but immediately. However, just a few days later, as Molly's connected with different gals, she began to come back around and begin to get into Molly's world. And then actually Molly was kind of a catalyst to bring her around some others. And, uh, that little, that little gal continued to struggle through time. But one thing that, one thing that Molly really learned is that, is that people really matter. And that just to forgive them when they, when they, when they make unfair demands, but then to leave the door open to relationship. There were some, some major things that she learned through that. Now, Molly and that gal are still friends today. They're still, they're still friends today. And, you know, about, at the, at the end of soccer season last year at Mark Keppel, they had an award ceremony and Molly was on the, the senior team on the varsity. And one thing I found out that I didn't even I didn't even know about is that the senior gals had to adopt some of the freshman gals who was on the freshman team, and that was something that they that this is part kind of a part of the tradition they do uh, at Mark Keppel. And so they go through and they gave awards, and uh, Molly got this one award. It's pretty cool. And then at the end, they asked someone, "Hey, kind of an open mic, come on up, and you can just share something." This one gal got up. She was a freshman. And she began to just talk about the difference that Molly had made in her life. And uh, it really it really marked me um, because there were three of, and I met them later, there were three, her three little sisters, they called them. But she talked about how Molly had just really just befriended them when other people wouldn't. Other people didn't think they were cool. They didn't hang out with them. But Molly was someone who really just got involved in their world and really and just encouraged them and just really enjoyed them. And they you could tell that they were just tight-knit group. They were just, you know, I, actually I came over to say hi and they were talking so much I thought I can't even get involved. Um, <laughs> but there's just a real strong friendship. And there's just, that's one thing about Molly over time is that she's learned to just really be, care about and connect with other people and just really appreciate that about her. And this, the trouble, some of the trouble that, along the way are really just opportunities for her to really to learn. And so that's, that's, uh, that's made a huge difference. And those, the times when your kids are going through trouble, it really is an opportunity for you to help them process, help them to see something from God's angle and see how they could actually begin, how they could actually deal with it in such a way where uh, it's really honoring to God and it blesses other people. So how do you, how do you, how do I help my family face trouble together. A couple of thoughts I'd like to give you. How do you help your family face trouble together? 
One is just you ask God for help. Uh, in Psalm 138, I pull out just a couple of pieces, but the psalmist just says, On the day I called, you answered me. You've made me bold with strength in my soul. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. And a little bit later, he actually says, The things that concern you accomplish the things that concern me. But just, just to ask God for help. But to ask for God for help, there's really, you need to, you really need to stay humble. That's the next thing, like how to help your family is you really have to stay humble. Uh, in Deuteronomy 8.16, uh, Moses just said, he gave, he's talking about God, he says, he gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. So God really had this desire that things go well with them, but they really needed to, he was really trying, one of the things that the trouble was doing was really making him humble, to humble the point where he actually wouldn't be dependent on himself. So right now, I would like to, I want us to watch a clip from a movie, uh, a movie called Cinderella Man, which I don't know if some of you have seen that movie. It's a, it's a great movie. It's a true story about a heavyweight fighter back in the early tw- in the 20s and 30s. But when he was like at the apex of his career, just doing well, but then the Great Depression hit in 29, and he lost everything. He had invested everything in the stock market and in a taxi cab company, and he lost everything. And he was wind up having to work at the docks, but he couldn't get work every day. And he was having a real hard time just meeting the needs of his family. And their heat and electricity gets turned off. And when that happens, a very cold environment in New York. And his wife took his kids and took their kids and took them to upstate New York where his, some of our family lived so that they could be taken care of. But he had promised his kids that he would never do that. He would never send them off. And so... What he, what he did is he, he decided he was going to go on public assistance, government assistance. And so he did, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite enough to really pay what he needed to pay. So this is him. He's going and he's asking some guys that he knows for help. Let's take a look at this. The thing is, I can't afford to, uh, I can't afford to pay the heat. I've had to farm out my kids. You know, to keep cutting shifts down at the docks, and you just don't get picked every day. I sold everything I got that anybody would buy. I went on public assistance. I signed out at the relief office. They gave me $19. I need another $18.38 so I can pay the bill and get the kids back. You know me well enough to know if I had anywhere else to go, I wouldn't be here. If you could help me through this time, I sure would be grateful. Sure, Jim. Sure.
widokiem. You know, humility really opens up the way to get your family what they need. And uh, you know, when, when trouble comes, we really we need to stay dependent on God and get the help that we need from Him. And uh, you know, we can really get prou- proud and self reliant, but trouble trouble really brings humility with it. It can really bring humility with it. And just remember that God really wants things to go really well for you. And uh, it's really important just to stay humble. And uh, just to really ask him and really connect with him. Now, one of the one of the biggest ways to help our families face trouble is really just the stories and examples in our own family of of what of what's happened. Um, you know, your kids and your grandkids will tell their stories, and uh, you're going to be a part of them, either directly or indirectly. You're going to be a part of the stories that they tell. You know, our, our kids they might forget some of the things we say, but they won't forget the things that we do. And uh, what I want to do this morning is just look real quickly at the life of uh, Joseph in the in the in the book of Genesis. First, one of the this family that's chronicled in the in the book of Genesis, and show, just show you a story that impacted Joseph's life. But Joseph, you know, I just at a high level, I want to just quickly sweep through his life. But you know, he he was uh, he was the son of uh, Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. But he, at about 17 years old, he'd really ticked his brothers off. He'd, 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 there's a few things he'd done that really made them angry. So he goes out to meet them and they take him, they throw him in a pit and they think, well, we're going to kill him. Now, if you thought you had family problems, this, these guys have family problems. And they said, uh, and then they, they said, you know what? Actually, this traveling band comes by. He goes, no, we're, we won't do that. We're going to just sell him. We'll sell him in, into slavery. And, you know, Joseph, he, he's, there's pleads of mercy. He's, he's pleading for his life. And they sell him, and you can just just imagine what it'd been like to to actually be sold and actually be sent and to walk away away from your family and going into this the complete unknown, not knowing if you'll ever ever return to your family, and just just a huge moment in his life where his whole life just switched and changed. Well, he's taken away, uh, and he's actually uh, given to uh, he's given a new master uh, there in Egypt, and he does really well there. His master really, he thinks a lot of him, and he actually puts him in charge of things. And then the master's wife accuses him of some things he didn't do, and he winds up in prison. 
So it's like, then he's now he's in prison. And he's just really dealing with that, that hardship. And then, uh, well, he's in prison, uh, and years are going by. As he's in prison, uh, the, the butler of the Pharaoh, he gets thrown into prison because the Pharaoh got mad at him, has this dream, and Joseph interprets his dream, and he says, you're actually going to be restored back, and you're going to go back to Pharaoh. And he says, when you do, hey, remember me. Tell them about me because I am here and I shouldn't be. I'm here unjustly. And so the guy goes back and he he forgets. And for two more years, Joseph is in prison. And then one day the Pharaoh has this dream and he can't figure it out. No one can figure it out. And the butler goes, wait a minute. I remember this guy. I remember this guy when, uh, well, I don't want to talk about what was going on back then, but uh, I remember this guy and uh, that was in prison. And so they, they clean Joseph up. They bring him to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh listens, and he tells him his dream. And Joseph, God gives him wisdom and Joseph interprets that dream he tells him you're going to have seven years of plenty and you need to save save up all the food a lot big portion of the food the grain because you're gonna have seven years of famine right after and so he tells him this and he has kind of this idea of like how they could go about it and the pharaoh says well who better to do it than you and so he winds up going from the prison to the second in command in egypt in the course of about a day um which Huge, huge thing in Joseph's life. And then so for seven years, it's just like he said, just like God had told him. And so there's all this grain that gets saved, and he's in charge of the grain. And then what happens is the famine comes, and then in this whole area of the country, uh, of the world, and Joseph, uh, Joseph's family back where he, where he grew up, they don't, have any, they don't have any food either. So his dad says he sends Joseph's brothers to go get food. And so when they show up in Genesis 42, 6 and 7, it says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the people who, and the people who, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Now you could, you can imagine as he recognized them, just the, uh, the emotions that were going through his mind that, Joseph had in his hands the power of life and death. Whatever he said would go. And here these guys are. He, he had to have remembered the callousness with which that they had really treated him. He had to remember his pleads from his plea, his pleading for mercy at their hands. He, uh, he had to remember just the terror that he felt as he was being uh, led away from his family. All of that's going through his mind, but he also remembered a story that he'd, that he'd been a part of, something that he had seen as a boy. And that also had to be going through his mind. And so I want to tell you just, I want to leave, kind of put a pin right there and go back and talk a little bit about Joseph's dad. Joseph's dad is a guy named Jacob. Jacob had only one brother, Esau, who was older than him. So Jacob, one, what he did is he, he and he deceived his dad and in such a way where he actually got the double inheritance uh, from his dad. And his family was actually put over Esau's family, his brother. And Esau was very, very angry with that. In fact, Esau said, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill him. That's actually in the Bible. And uh, he obviously was verbalizing that. And so Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob. So Jacob, Joseph's dad, runs away. And for about 20 years, he's gone. And he builds... Uh, there's a whole story there, but he builds up a family. And God tells him after about 20 years, I want you to go back to your family. And so, jo- so Jacob 
takes his family, they start going back. But all the while, he's, he's scared to death of meeting up with Esau because Esau said he's going to kill him next time he saw him. And so Joseph, and so Jacob is taking his family. And what, what, jo, what Jacob did is when he gets close, he meet, he, he sees Esau off the distance and Esau's there with 400 men. That's not usually what you bring to a family reunion, but, uh, Esau's there with five, 400 men and he, he can basically do anything he wants to do. And Jacob is just with his family, which there's quite a few of them. And so what he did is he, he just, he kind of lines them up and it says, in Genesis 33, 2, it says he put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Joseph is the only is the only son that was mentioned. But at that point, there were, I believe, 11. But Joseph was right there as a kid. And then Jacob goes ahead of everyone, and he goes towards Esau. And as he goes towards him, he bows seven times before he gets there. He's just treating Esau very, very respectfully. And when he gets there, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And so let's, a couple of verses later, it says, it shows what the reaction was. It says, but Esau did what Jacob didn't expect at all. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. And he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And they wept. Then Esau looked up and he saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? And he said, he asked, and Jacob answered, These are the children God has graciously given your servant. See, uh, Esau had in his hands the power of life and death. He could, have, he could have done something very different in that moment. But what he did is he, he really chose mercy with his brother. And he chose not to give his brother what he deserved. And Joseph heard this story his whole life. He grew up hearing this story his whole life. He was there as a young boy, but he had heard about this his whole life. And about 30 years later, there he stood with his brothers bowed in front of him. And he had the power of life and death in his hands. And he chose to do for them what he saw Uncle Esau do. And with all those conflicting emotions, he chose to do really what the story he grew up hearing about was all about. And he extended mercy to his brothers who really didn't deserve any mercy. That really marked him. That that story and what he had observed in his family, even his extended family, just really marked him. So, you know, our kids our kids may forget a lot of what we say, but they'll never forget what we do and who we are and who, we, who we're becoming and who we've become. In fact, if you, if you get the movie if, uh, Cinderella Man and you get the DVD, they have special features at the back, and in the special features... One of the little videos is of his one of his his surviving son, and his son and his grandkids are talking about Jim Braddock, and they tell and they say we remember when he went and he he begged for money so that we could come back home, and then they remembered that he actually after he started making money again he went and paid back all the assistance back to the government they didn't even know what to do with it he walks in he pays it and they're like we don't. We, we can't accept this. He goes, well, do what you need with it, but I'm, I've paid you back. But that's a, that story, just something that really marked their family tradition and, and the way that they, the way that they live life. So who you are, you know, you have this opportunity as a parent to really create an environment of hope and, uh, in the midst of hardship, uh, with your family and with your kids. I want to, I want to watch one more clip because you just, 
you can't quit watching clips until you see Lord of the Rings. So, um, but I want we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at the, a clip where Gandalf is talking to Pippin, and it looks like you know things are not looking very good at the moment. But I want you to just just uh, just pay attention to to who Gandalf is and how that really helps Pippin. Let's take a look. Someone come up here and start my heart. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, you know, guys, um, he just, because of what he was sure about, he was able to create it. He was able to really be a refuge, really for Pippin. And uh, really what God wants, as, I, as, we, as we bring this uh, message to a close, is what God really wants us as parents, just to really provide a shelter for our kids and a refuge for them. And it's really tied up in who we're becoming. And it's, it's a process for us. But as we're becoming who God wants us to be, we provide a refuge for them. Uh, Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. When you, uh, when you take God seriously, and you walk in his ways, you develop a real strong confidence over time in just how life's going and God's involvement in your life. And it really, your kids really benefit by having the refuge in that. And they, they, that's the environment that they grow up in. And so, you know, if you're, if you're making God your refuge, if you're pursuing a relationship with him and you're, you're, you're really dealing with him and really allowing yourself to be trained by him, then you create a safe place for your kids, for them to deal with their trouble, for you to really take the things you're learning from God and really help them with it. And uh, it makes all the difference. So um, with that, I'd like, to, I'd like to ask the band to go ahead and uh, come back up. And go through, we're going to go through a few next steps. But if you, And also, if you haven't finished filling out some things on your connection card, now's a great time to do that and throw it in to the offering when it comes by. But maybe, maybe for you, maybe a next step would just, just to be making God your refuge and begin really taking Him seriously in a 
really putting into practice the things that he's trying to teach you through his word. And maybe for you, a next step today would be just to help your kids see their trouble from God's angle. You know, take some of the things that God has really helped you with and really help them with it. Or maybe it's just uh, just being an example to them, just really thinking through how I can handle this in such a way where they can see how to handle crisis in their own life. With that, uh, let me pray, and we'll get back to service. God, Father, uh, just very grateful to you for your involvement in our lives and that you really do care. I pray, Father, for, for each one of us today that we would really move towards you in relationship and that we would really have a strong confidence based on our just our taking you very seriously and putting into practice what you say and that our kids would really learn that. In Jesus' name, amen.